theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning, theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hi, Dr. Amy. Hello, Dr. Joy. How are you today? I'm good. I'm a little tired. Been in Zoom meetings all day, but I'm here and I'm excited about our discussion today. I am too. I've been thinking a lot lately with some of our conversations about identity, Mm -hmm. identity affirmation and development. It's really stretched across a lot of our conversations about honoring people's culture, honoring people's names, honoring people's histories. So I'm looking forward to delving into this conversation with our guests today. I am too. So I was even researching, do teachers judge students based on their appearance, based on their culture? And certainly we do. I mean, we're human, right? And so oftentimes students are prejudged. And when we prejudge our students, then we're changing the value of how much investment are we going to make into certain students. And when we start thinking like that, students come up short, right? And I can recall my son, and I won't say the schools, but he spent three and a half years in private school, predominantly white private school for high school. And in his last six months, he went to the public school, which was more diverse. And he said in that six, in that six months, his experience was so much more rich than in the three and a half years that he was at the private school. First, I thought, wow, I could have saved a lot of money, but that was my first thought. But then my second thought is, how do we change this, Amy? How do we change the perspective and how teachers and educators prejudge and that we give a whole investment into the whole child and into every child and we start to cultivate all of what they have? But let me ask this though, how was that experience richer than his previous years of experience? Were there relationships? Was it the curriculum? Were there specific topics that he had never explored before? Or were there friendships? What was it that was different? It was his interaction with teachers and administrators that were, was very different for him. He felt very much like a student and everything was structured and he had to be on his P's and Q's and he wasn't a whole person and they accepted him because he was intelligent enough to be there. When he went to the public school, it was all of him. 
He had administrators that gave him high fives in the hallway. They knew his name. They were happy. They were really happy that he was there for a variety of reasons. His, the entire person from sports to academics to can you hang out on the weekends? And he just felt like, oh, they know me. And, and they didn't know him, but he had that feeling like they know me. So that identity affirmation was really valuable to him. It was. I want to introduce our guest today, Dr. Goldie Muhammad. Her work has appeared in numerous books and journals, including Research in the Teaching of English, Urban Education, the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy, and Written Communication. Dr. Muhammad serves as the director of the Urban Literacy Collaborative and Clinic. She strives to shape the national conversation for educating youth who have been underserved. She serves with teachers and young people across the United States and South Africa in best practices in culturally responsive instruction. She also served as a school board president and continues to work collaboratively with local schools across the communities in the Atlanta area. She is the recipient of multiple state and national research awards, as well as grant funding to study culturally and historically responsive literacy in the STEM fields. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Muhammad. We are so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. And I wish we could steal you back to the Midwest. We really need you. I must say that Dr. Goldie is also a region rat. And I don't mean that negatively, but I'm sure she's heard that term. <laughs> and we can really use what you have to offer. I love the book. Amy and I both have the book, Cultivating Genius. And we were just talking earlier. I wish I had this information when my son was in high school. That's mm -hmm. been a while. Yeah. And I was telling Amy that he spent three and a half years in a private school, a predominantly white private school. And then he spent his last six months at a public school. And he talks about how much richer that public school experience, that diverse experience was for him than the three and a half years that he was at a private school. And your book really hits to that because he talks about, they knew me. It made a difference for him. So can you provide an overview of your latest book, but you know, really the framework, the four part of the equity model and how is so grounded in history? I know that's a big question, but get us started. Yeah. And, you know, I am back in the Midwest Yay! <laughs> from the last time we talked to now, I accepted an offer at University of Illinois, Chicago. So back at my alma mater. Okay. That's a lunch date. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's really exciting. When I was writing Cultivating Genius, I really wanted answers. <laughs> Why weren't we achieving at levels and of greatness at heights of greatness that we have the potential to as a nation, especially when it comes to black and brown children? I needed answers around better pedagogies and practices. And so much like many people, I went to our ancestors and I studied, well, what did they do? What types of goals did they have for education? And what were some of their practices? What did they read? And I came upon this beautiful history 
of studying Black literary societies within my research of just studying education, historical education and historical education among Black communities. But I came upon Black literary societies, some of our nation's first book clubs and writing clubs, where they came together to read and write and think as abolitionists. And as they were learning and having joy, they were working and resisting to help make the country better, social conditions better for Black folks and for all folks. And I studied their practices, the records. They left such wonderful and lengthy records of just their different activities within these organizations. And I started to study their records, their public addresses, their writings, their poetry, their their announcements, their newspapers, all of these things, the pamphlets, the books they wrote, not just talking about their involvement in these literary societies, but involvement in schools and communities in general. And I started to read these historical artifacts and say to myself, wow, they're actually spelling out a playbook, a guidebook for education. And so I would read some things and I said, well, that feels like identity. And that feels like criticality. And that feels like intellectualism and skills. And, you know, it was a research process, right? So those were what's in the book. These pursuits are my final codes. <laughs> but, you know, I went through a lot of discovering and rediscovering and returning back to the archives to see, okay, what is really happening here? And from my research into this history, I developed this framework of what I call culturally and historically responsive education or historically responsive literacy. Because I noticed that. For our ancestors, literacy was synonymous with education. To be literate was to be educated. They used those words as synonyms. It emerged into these four pursuits that I write about in the book, Cultivating Genius, of helping children to improve, advance, and elevate their identity development, helping them to know who they are and who other people are. Number two, helping them to develop the skills and proficiencies needed across all content areas. Number three, helping to teach them new knowledge that they can put into action of intellectualism. And number four is criticality, helping children and youth and adults, whoever you teach, I teach this model with all sorts of populations, teaching them to name, understand, critique, question, power, equity, oppression and things that are related to that. And so this became a model to use. And when the pandemic hit, I went back into my research and started to code it again and came to joy, which became a fifth pursuit. How are we elevating beauty and aesthetics and truth into the world from our curriculum? And so now this four layered model became a five part layered model. Teachers are now taking this up and using it across the country. So many people are doing so many things with my name. I have so much to live up to. So thank you for adding me. <laughs> because as the- of your name, keep the joy. And <laughs> you and the joy, right? <laughs> Amy and I were talking about this book. Not only is it a framework, I mean, this is right up there. You know, we have Howard Gardner, we have Dooley, we have Maslow, and now we have Muhammad. (laughs) This is all of that. Amy, you're the literature person. This book is rich in literature. 
not just a framework and I was reading through it as a professional educator and one that teaches other professional educators. I'm looking at it in two ways. How do I use it as a textbook, right? How do we use it to prepare teacher candidates? And then I'm reading it like it's a literature book or, and I'm reading it like sometimes it turns into something that's fiction and then sometimes it's nonfiction. It's a great read all the way around. And, and so the ease in reading it, I think makes it powerful for all educators. And, and you talked about the historical perspective. So I was wondering what was your interest in kind of going back and studying black literature and also some of the things I, I heard you refer to is the tribute to other Black women, and you call them sisters, and you call them mothers. Can you talk about that? And can you talk about where you draw your strength from? Yeah, I mean, it's very clear. I draw my strength from Black women and girls. I started this research when I was a doctoral student. In the research part of my career, I have written and studied greatly on Black women and girls and their literacy practices. I run a summer institute called Black Girls Write in the summers, and my dissertation looked at this model that you're reading now in Cultivating Genius. It looked at this model with eight Black girls, and so they helped me to shape the model, to understand the model, and for the first time, I got to see what the model looks like with instruction. And so, so much of my own, and I call them sisters, yes, my sisters, my mothers, sister authors, they help to cultivate my own genius. The girls I write with, the women I know who keep me, who help to sustain me, but even the women and girls who I have not met, I've only met them through their writing, right? And sisters like Maria Stewart or Harriet Tubman, they still cultivate my genius. They help me to shape who I am. You know, when I look at their lives, okay, how can I live my own life? How can I be a better teacher? They are the ones to kind of, to keep me. And I started writing so much about Black women and girls. And this book was probably one of the first things that I wrote that was more inclusive of everybody after studying. I mean, the Black girl literature can be applied to different populations too, but where it wasn't a specific population that I focused on, I guess I should say. What I found fascinating and eye-opening really was that historically responsive literacy isn't just about country's history. It's about the individual histories. And many of the questions you ask at the end of the chapters, like thinking about what history an individual is bringing into the classroom. Can you talk more about why that was so essential for your book to include and to really emphasize identity development? Yeah. Um, so first, history is important because everything can be explained by it. You know, one of my mothers is a historian and it's, it's beautiful to have conversations about history around the world with her. And again and again, I'm reminded that if you want to explain something, what's going on in schools today, history, <laughs> why teachers are happy with their jobs, the history can explain that, why they might be not so happy with education. It could be the history too. So, you know, history is really important. 
And a lot of times we start student stories off of what we think we see of them today. And I, I start to hear things like struggling and unmotivated and at risk. That is not inclusive of their histories. The story doesn't start there. Let's say if they're struggling at reading, they struggle reading print texts. You still don't start the story there. You start the story off with the pedagogy, the instruction, the standards, the methods of teaching, the theories used to teach that child to read, and what has led to a child struggling. We don't say the instruction is struggling or the teacher struggled to teach the child how to read or the community struggled to lift that child. We start with the child. And so go back to history, but then also revert back to a different way of thinking and go back to their, their history and literacy. A teacher told me one time, my second grade black boys hate reading. I said, that's not possible. <laughs> it's just not, you might think they do. They might think they do, but they don't. It's in their blood. They just don't know it. You have to connect them to their lineage. But if the teacher doesn't understand black male literacies historically, how can you connect them to their roots, right? And so history really matters in all this and it helps to better shape one's identity today. It kind of goes back to that Sankofa metaphor that we see again and again. If you, if you want to understand the present and look into the future, you have to go back to the past. If you want to understand yourself, you have to understand the past, your past self, your ancestors, the past histories that you have, because we have multiple histories to better shape who we are today. So identity really matters and history is connected to identity. And identity also matters because our students are so multi-layered and faceted. I mean, there's so many different identities that they carry. We're not just one thing. We're not monolithic beings, right? In one minute, we can say so much of who we are as adults. Our children are much like that. What I'm seeking to do in my work is really explain how do you nurture and cultivate their histories and their identities and their liberation through your pedagogy? Now, when you say that, it makes me think of the third grade assessment in the state of Indiana that I read, where, in my opinion, is very punitive. If you're in third grade, you don't pass this assessment, you don't go to fourth grade. And it sounds very punitive for the child. Where is the accountability for the education system? And why, why are we allowing these children to fail? So it makes me think of a lot of things. But I also wonder about your education. Can you talk to us about your early education and how it has impacted your work? Mm -hmm. And you're right, that is punitive. If any adult said that one test will determine your fate for the next year, that alone would stress us out that even if we were prepared to pass that test, we may not pass because the stress can take over. And, and we know that these tests do not predict full achievement. There's research about that. For my own educational experiences, also in Indiana, I was a third grader in Indiana and it was called, I think, the IGAP test then. <laughs> Do you remember that? It wasn't called that. It was had a different name, but I grew up in my elementary experiences in Gary, Indiana, where I was born and raised. And I went to a school called Banneker and 
I had very loving and nurturing classrooms and teachers. I was very fortunate in that way where communities were built in the classroom, like families were built to the point where, you know, on a regular, almost daily basis, I talked to friends and classmates from elementary school, from kindergarten. And I left in like fifth grade. <laughs> that was the last time I saw most of them. And I still talk to them all these years later because of that community and that, and I saw myself in the teachers. I saw myself in the learning that really mattered. And then, you know, I moved into the suburbs outside of Chicago and it was a different experience. I did not see myself in the teaching and learning. There was no community built. There was no black genius talk. And I spent, and up into high school, you know, I spent a lot of time as an adult into college trying to supplement the education that I wasn't given, trying to help to figure out who I am, who I'm not, who I wanted to be. I had to supplement my own history, like studying my history, because I never learned my history even. I'm training so many schools and teachers now. I had the wonderful opportunity of training my old high school. It was over 20 years ago. So a couple, maybe one or two of the teachers who were my <laughs> teachers who were still there. <laughs> and, you know, I told them this. I, I said that no child should leave high school never seeing a teacher who looks like them. No child should leave high school not seeing themselves in the curriculum, breathing, thriving, seeing their own excellence of their history, especially those who have identities that are not projected positively or fully historically or currently. I had that wonderful opportunity to tell them that and, and they listened. And that's really important for moving things forward because... In another 20 or so years, somebody else would be saying the same things to them. In the middle of that, I had an opportunity to go to a private and Islamic school, which was, I had parts of my identity nurtured there. So I had the opportunity to go to a different variety of schools and always wanted to be a teacher. So I felt like I remember so much of their pedagogy because I felt like I was studying my teacher's moves. <laughs> Because that's what I wanted to be. It's kind of like a young kid who wants to play professional basketball. You're studying the moves. And that's what I was doing. So I was studying like their assignments. And, how, and I can remember, if I remember anything from my childhood, it's a lot of my teacher's pedagogies and their different experiences that they presented. And I had opportunities in education where resources were limited, but the love, the care, the support, the identity, the criticality was there. And then I went to schools where they had a lot of resources, but it also lacked culturally responsive education. You make a good point. And you're not the only one. You know, I play rock teacher all the time. So I really wanted to be a teacher, but I never saw a teacher of color all the way through grade school, high school, and my undergraduate degree. And it mm -hmm. makes a huge difference. And you talk about everything is not everything. You know, when my husband was working in the Pullman district, which is a very, the school district there is very poor, 99% free reduced lunch, mm -hmm. where he used to have to cut hair on Friday. As an art teacher, he had to be so creative. His, his budget was zero. That's what his budget was, zero dollars. And he would have to go to local companies to get paper and different things. And the things they would make out of things that they could find, mm. make beautiful, beautiful, beautiful art. 
And then he transferred to an Indiana school with lots of resources. And everything was no longer everything. He had a budget, but things were so very different and it lacked creativity. And it Mm -hmm. took away a lot of his creativity and things that he had to follow. So everything is not always everything. Wow, yeah. And and it, it makes you really think about privilege and opportunity. Like sometimes when you don't experience certain things, you, you're at a loss. You talked about uh, being involved in school professional development and really helping teachers see through this new lens. Mm-hmm. But has there been pushback on this work that you're doing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Again, if if you want answers, if you want a pathway, a guide, go back to our histories and our ancestors. If they put, if they gave them pushback, they're gonna give me. And thankfully, I was ready because I studied what happened to them and and what they did. Anytime you do justice-centered work around anti-racism, people are going to work their hardest to hold on to whiteness, to hold on to anything that feels anti uh, uh black <laughs> you know one time i said you know i've been training the model that's in the book i've been training on it for so many years and i remember going to a school in brooklyn which had about 90 percent black children and more children of color it was mostly black and brown children but 90 percent black and i said today we're going to talk about black historical excellence and a model to teach all kids excellently and he and this man raised his hand and says i'm offended as a white man, he told me. Now here was a white man who chose to, to teach at a 90% black school. And even the mere fact that I'm saying it with a smile, people who know me, I love to smile. And with a smile on my face today, we're gonna talk about black historical excellence and how it's gonna help us all. <laughs> he was offended by that. So if you're offended by that, I wonder what, are, what and how are you teaching those children every single day? So there is pushback. The mere talk of black genius excellence is pushback. Like let's use a model developed by a black woman is pushback. (laughs) Me as a black woman, my presence and other sisters who I've known have gone to these public schools and have talked about justice and anti-racism and the disruption of oppression and have gotten death threats, just talking about it from teachers. There is pushback, we know, because we're seeing all these anti-Black bills. Um, That's what I'm interpreting them as, these anti-CRT bills and people at board meetings saying, when we teach slavery, we have to teach the pros and cons. This is happening, and it happened before. And it's going to happen again, because people who resist, the next move is policy. Because all of the social justice warriors or whatever you want to call us, we have never mandated justice in schools. Just because we are not having separate water fountains, we think that it's equity, but it's not. It's not fully there. And until it's fully there, folks like me are going to keep pushing and fighting But most of that pushback comes from ignorance. And I'm okay with understanding that. I don't get offended by somebody else's ignorance. Sometimes I don't understand because we have leaders who are not being readers. (laughs) They're not reading. 
and they're making these claims. And so ignorance is a big reason for that pushback and fear. People fear that if we teach culturally responsive education, somehow my child isn't going to have all the opportunities and privileges of the world. It's only going to elevate every child, but it will give other children opportunities and privileges of the world that they did not have. And you might have to be okay with that if we are really one nation as we claim to be, if we're really all united <laughs> as we claim to be. You have to be okay with your sons and daughters' friends having the same opportunity as your sons and daughters, right? I'm, I'm constantly trying to educate myself and others, and hopefully that will sort of eliminate some of that fear. And for those who are still getting giving pushback, their hearts might not be fully loving and humanizing. Right. Sometimes I choose to engage with them, but sometimes I don't. I mean, I get requests to speak and they'll say things like, we really love your work, Goldie, but can you not say these words? You cannot right. say race, racism. Right. You can't offend anyone. And I say, look, whatever I say, I say in truth and kindness and love. That's what my best friend taught me to do. How you receive it is on you. I have one job to say it in truth and kindness and love. But to say that I cannot talk about race and racism or theories that inform my work means that you really don't know my work or support it. Right. Or you have so much fear that the higher ups, whoever they are, will come and shut it all down because we're all scared. We're, we're all scared of going for broke, as James Baldwin said. Nobody wants to go for broke. And he says, that's when real change happens. Right. We want to go for that part that where you assimilate. I was watching Amy's face when you said, we'll talk about slavery, the pros and cons of slavery. <laughs> and Amy's face just completely it's like you can't make this up. But that's true. Where you sit depends on where you stand. And depending on where you were sitting at the time, hey, it was a pro for me, too bad for you. And that's not speak, looking at the whole human. And right now we're talking to Goldie Muhammad, Dr. Goldie Muhammad, and we're talking about her new book, but we're talking even beyond that, but Cultivating Genius, I'm in love with this book. And we're talking about equity. And we're also celebrating the fact that she's moving back to the Midwest <laughs> so that she could share more with us of what she's learned and what she's sharing with the world. I learned that you received a $750,000 grant to study the model of STEM Lit and 90,000 copies, probably by now 100,000 copies because we bought books too. <laughs> of the book Cultivating Genius has now sold. What was your original impact and goal for this book when you wrote it? And what is your hope for it now? <laughs> I knew it was something special. I felt it. I'm, I'm imagining that that's what artists feel when they would create albums and things like that or a piece of art. You don't know how everybody is going to respond to it, but you know that you love it and it feels good and it's something special. And that was enough for me. Honestly, I'm not just saying that that was enough because before the book came, I was doing the work. The book didn't bring the work. You know, I had been in schools and volunteering and in communities, curriculum developing and doing all this stuff. I've been doing it for a while, 
I just felt like I needed to write a book because people kept telling me you need to write a book on this. I said, okay. After this, I, you know, I, of course I had grant funds here and there, as you mentioned, like the STEM is literacies grant to study the impact in STEM. And I started to look at social studies and ELA and PE. So this, this model of mine became so applicable to so many different content areas. In the first, I don't know, like right when it was pre-released, it sold like a thousand copies. I was like, whoa, that's great. (laughs) The book publisher had a goal of 4,000 for the year. In in about 15 months, like you said, it's about 105,000 sold because teachers wanted something practical, I think. And it's sold during a pandemic during a racial, another racial uprising, because brothers and sisters, I mean, that's when the book was really taking off. Teachers were trying to navigate Zoom and other forms of technology to teach. And we were protesting for our lives of our sons and daughters and brothers and sisters to be kept alive. We, all this was happening and people started talking about equity more. Now, for some of us, we've been talking about equity every day for like forever, but for others, you know, they started talking about equity more and what it looks like in schools. I think teachers started to attach themselves to this model and especially to the joy component too, how it brings it all together. And we started to just write lesson plans. and I mean, we started the next day, started working. It wasn't just theory. It wasn't just, oh, let's talk about social justice and why we need it. We moved it into action, into communities and schools and into practice. And I think teachers really appreciated that. And so I don't know, I, I'm certainly am humbled and grateful with the response. I don't know if I imagined this, but I knew, like I said, it was something special and I only could could hope and pray that people loved it as much as I did. And then in the future, I'm trying to just listen. I always try to listen to where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) I don't think I've really made real plans for myself in a long time. I just tried to see where I'm supposed to be. I feel in my heart that it's, it's connected to writing curriculum and spending more time there because that's where my joy comes alive. And that's what I'm seeing the real progress. And, and, you know, I think the next book, it'll be more of a guide of how to write curriculum and how to revise and think about curriculum in schools with that added component of joy. We, of course, talk (laughs) about education. We talk about the classroom and about the practicalities of teaching and designing curriculum on this podcast. But tell us about the broader applications because I think it reaches outside the classroom. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm using my framework to rewrite mission statements, interview questions for schools, how to run staff meetings, equity protocols, handbooks, language, all of that. But even outside of school, a lot of, or K-12 education, a lot of researchers are thinking about my work as, a, uh, as their method, as a part of their methodology in studying those five aspects in different careers. I mean, in science, not, not so much science education, but science. I have been talking to doctors in Florida about, let's think about the five pursuits when it comes to healthcare. 
how am I seeing myself in healthcare in the doctor's office and feeling safe and comfortable? Do I know my own health, the history of my health, right? Do I understand the skills needed to like health literacy to navigate that system that we're all a part of, right? Because we all go through health issues and wellness and things like that. Intellect, do I, do I know the terms, the, the, medic, the medications and all that? Am I becoming smarter about my own health and how to take care of it? Criticality, and this is a real question, right? Do we just sign the documents? <laughs> do we study the medications, the vaccines before we put them in our bodies? Or do we just kind of take it and trust? And, you know, I wonder sometimes if some of these consent forms and those medical forms that we sign, because sometimes we just sign, yeah. it's like these old print, like they use the right. typewriter and it's so small, but I said, what about if they put it in color and like a graphic novel kind of comic, kind of, we will all read it. And then for joy, you know, what happens with our health when we, when we take care of ourselves, when we listen to our doctors and things like that. So people have talked about my model in so many different spaces in dating. Oh, I love it. <laughs> like asking potential mates or- These are good questions. questions. right? You should ask your next potential partner about their skills, their intellect, their consciousness through criticality, their joy. Some people may not have joy. Do you want to be with somebody who don't smile? Right. You, you can just skip that whole 10 months of misery and dating this person that wasn't going to work out by just asking those questions. Exactly. <laughs> if I had this model in my own life, it would have saved me. But, you know, don't be surprised if I'm partnering with Match.com or something. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. Surprised. <laughs> yeah, I, I the last collaboration I had was with Crayola and art and thinking about like different kinds of art activism and things like that. So lots of just wonderful ways to expand the model in different domains and disciplines and fields. At Governor State University, we pride ourselves on educating our candidates faculty and staff on socially just and equity issues. We're a long way from being perfect. We have a long way to go, but we do try to as much as possible educate people. And we're right now we're working on adding a culturally responsive teaching and leading standards into 18 different curriculums, preparation, educator preparation curriculum. And this was not easy for us to do. In Illinois, there was a ton of pushback. Like you said earlier, people were protesting and saying, you're trying to get rid of our whiteness. So finally, the legislation passed. And now we can actually integrate this into our curriculum. Imagine that you have to give permission to integrate this into our curriculum. So how does someone like Amy and I, who are responsible for preparing teachers, how do we integrate this in our curriculum? How do you imagine for us that we integrated into teacher preparation or all of educator preparation, not just teacher, our administrators, our school counselors, our school psychologists. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got to practice with this, you know, my last year in the state because we started to use the model in many ways for our own teacher education and prep program. The first thing you can, you start with the entrance criteria. Who gets to be a teacher? Who gets to enter your program? What kinds of protocols do you all have in place? 
So as one example, we had an essay and an interview. It was too many students, so we would do group interviews, and but each of them would have a different, they had to rotate who answers the question first. But you made it part of their dispositions. Exactly. You know, that was a part of it, and they had to do a short essay. In my dream teacher education program, I would have people who wanted to be a teacher sort of like write a lesson plan, like freedom dream up something that you would want to teach. I was a part of this group called Golden Apples of Illinois, and I love the questions they asked and how they prepared us when we were high school teacher students to be teachers. I want the brightest and most conscious teachers if you're, you're not going to be ready for this program. Again, my dream program. You will have to consider who we're hiring. Do we have faculty who's ready to talk about cultural response of pedagogy and diversity and inclusion and things? It cannot just be one or two faculty members. That's a lot on those two faculty members. <laughs> then we, you must start going across your syllabi. Who are, who's being read? Are the readings, I had to ask myself this, are the required readings multimodal? I was only assigning articles and books. And then I'm like, well, when I talk to K-12 teachers, I'm telling them to teach with video and podcasts and images and art. And here I am only assigning books and articles in my own college course. And so are the texts multimodal? Who's writing the books? Are we learning from diverse authorship and scholars? What are some of their touchstone texts? and touchstone assignments. For each of the syllabus and syllabi, are we as professors prepared to do what we are assigning? That's a really big question. I had my students this past semester rewrite five common core state standards. And so I did it with them. I had them write lesson plans. I did it with them. That's very, very important. We have to have them learn how to to write curriculum. We need lesson planning and unit planning classes. That's one thing our students really struggle with. They were leaving our programs and didn't know anything about curriculum and how to write it. That's the most beautiful part of being a teacher and they did not learn it fully. I would suggest to have like a lesson plan format. We developed with my model, like a unit plan template. So every time across the whole program, they were writing lessons and units, they had to use the same one. And we, we attached it to the ed TPA. So they were doing like ed TPA plus. And then to exit, they had to create culturally responsive pedagogy. So it was the entrance and also the exit criteria. Really good. That's, thank Those you. Are things to think I, about. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> because of the pandemic for the last four semesters, has it? And Amy, we've not used the Ed TPA. We're using something else called CPAS, but now we're thinking about, you know, how do we develop our own portfolio? So this is giving me lots of ideas. This is great. Mm -hmm. I started to do like curriculum writing sessions with my students. We didn't have a class. I said, we about to get together and just write lesson plans. And over a hundred students showed up. It was just like in the evening one day. Wow. I think we have to sort of think about extra learning opportunities that we would give teachers, in-service teachers, PD, like cool, fresh PD modeling sessions. So I started to model instruction for students and show them I was being that model for them. And so I think we have to think beyond what's currently, you know, we see in teacher education. You have given us 
a tremendous number of things to think about and a lot of practical information that really speaks to the heart. It really does. And you mentioned joy being that fifth piece of the puzzle. As we wrap up today, I want to ask you, what brings you joy? What fills you? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Definitely my faith and the people around me who I keep and they keep me, they keep me smiling. They keep me laughing. They remind me of who I am. I was working with a, a child, a group of children recently in Staten Island. And one child wrote, I say, why do you write? And I talk to children like they're my colleagues. <laughs> I'm like, this is why I'm writing. I'm struggle writing. I'm struggling to write. Why do you write? And she said, you know, I write to remember myself. Writing gives me a lot of joy too. And the people around me, my village, my partner, my best friend, my family, my parents, and people like you, you too, when you keep really great people around you that pushes your thinking, your consciousness, your joy, um, helps you to remember yourself, that's a good thing. That's joy giving to me. So I do a lot of this work and it makes me tired. But it's so much joy in it because the teachers, the teachers are so smart and innovative and the students, they're so, they have so many different ideas and it's just so much joy to be around them. So that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about my own joy. Well, being with guests like you certainly brings me joy. And and not to mention that we are co-hosting together, Joy and I. So, you know, every day is Joy. And and going back to your history, can you pronounce your first name? I know we call you Goldie and I love that, but pronounce (laughs) your first name for us. Yes, my first name is Golnissar and it is Persian. My dad is from Iran. And so Gol is is like garden or flowers and Nassar means like sharing. So sharing flowers, more joy, right? Oh, love it. <laughs> That's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank yes, thanks for sharing that with us. Please stay in contact with us. We'd love to have lunch. Yes, I would love that too. And thank Definitely you. Definitely come visit you. I would love that. And thank you for hosting this and for doing this work. In addition to all that you do, you do more. So I really appreciate you all creating this this wonderful platform for information. Well, thank you for sharing information with us. Also, and we hope to have you on campus talking to our faculty and staff. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.